It's been more than seven years since the Boston Federal Reserve Bank published a report titled The Color of Wealth in Boston that has served as something of a regional wake-up call to the issue of the enormous racial wealth gap in Greater Boston. The report highlighted the now often cited but still no less jaw-dropping figures on household net worth in the region. They showed that the median net worth of a white household in the region was $247,000. For Hispanics, it ranged from zero to $3,000, depending on their background. And for U.S.-born black households, it was just $8. Are we making any progress in closing those gaps? And what are the most promising approaches to doing so? That's what we're exploring today on the podcast. I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine. Joining me are Betty Francisco, the CEO of the Boston Impact Initiative, a nonprofit impact investment fund working to increase wealth and asset building opportunities in communities of color. Welcome, Betty. Great to be here, Michael. And Mike Leba, co-executive director of City Life Vida Urbana, a Boston-based community organization fighting for racial, social, and economic justice. Mike, thanks for joining us as well. I'm glad to be here. So, Betty, from the the time of this report seven years ago that has served as kind of this benchmark for folks and called attention to this issue of the of the racial wealth gap what what do you think has happened in the in the time since have we been making any progress in addressing it or has it been more we've sort of been been spending time highlighting the problem and calling attention to it it's a great question. So absolutely uh, important that we highlighted the problem, right? Because it did, that report sparked outcry about the, you know, absolute uh, disparity that exists, not just between blacks and whites, but also when you look deeper, there was research around Dominican populations, Puerto Rican populations, Caribbean blacks, which also show um, significant disparities. I think Dominican uh, families showed a net worth of zero. Right. That's what I said. And in, in among Hispanic populations, it really, it depended on the the particular population group. The particular country, correct. So the, the there's acknowledgement that the study served a really important role to highlight the issue, because oftentimes we think of Massachusetts, right, as a very liberal, progressive state. We're the first on many fronts, but yet we're one of the most unequal states when it comes to asset uh, wealth in, in our commonwealth. So it spawned a number of initiatives like the Black Economic Council, BECMA, right, rose out of that, that report. Many other um, initiatives also anchored in on the data and helped bring attention to it. Even Boston Impact Initiative, it's when we launched our first fund in 2017, part of the, um, the role of the fund was to specifically use finance and use integrated capital to close the racial wealth divide. And that's actually that $8, $246,000 disparity is highlighted in our uh, pitch deck, right, to investors to say, this is why we need this kind of investing capital to support entrepreneurs of color, specifically for wealth building. So yes, I think it, it, it was a driver of some action. And then I also think the events of 2020, COVID pandemic, George Floyd, uh, you know, intense focus on racial inequities also spawned an additional level of action um, that we're seeing now. And 
the fact that not a lot has changed in the numbers, right? So the Boston Fed, along with the Greater Boston Chamber, the Bar Foundation, Eastern Bank, are creating a new survey that will go deeper. It will it, that first survey was quite limited, so it will be a more of a longitudinal study to understand what has changed. How do we better measure? the racial wealth gap, and then what are some of the innovations, right? What are some of the programs, policy changes um, that have been put in place and or that need to be put in place to exponentially address the drivers and the causes of that gap? And Mike, how do you sort of see the, you know, the landscape in the in the time since that that report came out? I mean, I think Betty spoke about it. Uh, I, I agree with a lot of what Betty kind of said and I think the one thing that I would just kind of draw out, though, is that, you know, the the report was a snapshot in time. And a snapshot in time doesn't say much about the trajectory prior to or after. And, you know, this this racial wealth gap didn't just emerge, you know, between one day to the next, right? It is the legacy of decades, centuries of policy and its impacts on families and how they've borne out longitudinally. And so I think as we kind of sit with, this is a snapshot of where we are today. I also think that we need to think about it in terms of, and how are we undoing that harm? How are we boosting folks that haven't benefited? Because there have been boosts for people that are on the upper end of that that wealth scale. And so I think just like contextualizing it as, um, part of a historical trajectory, I think is really, really important. And I think one of the biggest things that we should be really um, excited about, I'm, I continue to be excited to see that there's a lot of progress on, on. Um, I mean, particularly like creating structures and systems, even just for stuff like government procurement and how do we, how do we procure in a way that like advances the, the productive and, and wealth building capacities of communities of color. I think it's a really positive thing. It's, you know, I think it's not going to get us out of this wealth inequality instantly. But I do think that there has been a lot of important groundwork that's been laid as a result of this report and as a result of a lot of the organizing that's happened in the last decade. Yes. I mean, certainly, I think we're hearing here in Boston at the at the city government level from the Wu administration, uh, a lot of uh, talk about taking steps in that area about government procurement. Uh, I mean, not for nothing, the, the sort of founder of BECMA, the group that uh, that Betty, you referenced, uh, the first or the first director uh, is now, you know, sort of the, the economic development chief for the city. So that that's a pretty clear indication, I would I would say, of 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 this growing recognition at the level of city government of of that as just a really powerful lever uh, that can be pulled. But Betty, can you talk a little more broadly, because I think this kind of maybe touches on the work that your organization does, what, what is it, you know, help people understand a little bit the Boston Impact Initiative and how it, uh, you, you spoke of different approaches that have uh, emerged to dealing with the racial wealth gap. Uh, talk about, talk about uh, your organization a little. Sure. So, so BII is um, one of the first um, local place-based impact funds specifically focused on on using what we call integrated capital. So it's the whole spectrum of capital equity debt grants 
to support entrepreneurs of color or communities creating jobs um, in communities of color and with a racial justice, economic justice lens, right? So there are lots of impact funds out there, some focused on climate, some focused on diverse founders, but this one was specifically focused on economic justice with the mission of closing the racial wealth divide. So a lot of what we do is flipping these concepts of risk and return, who should get capital, um, how should we secure that capital with collateral, flipping those concepts on their head, right, so that it challenges the traditional practices and policies of, of traditional banks, for example, that have uh, kept out um, many entrepreneurs of color from accessing credit, accessing the type of capital they need to grow their businesses. So our first fund was a $7 million fund that we've now invested across 50 enterprises in eastern Massachusetts. And those businesses um, run the gamut. They're, they're sector agnostic from manufacturing to retail, food, uh, climate, uh, environmental, etc. And what the learnings um, that we gathered from making those investments are now being shared in our ecosystem so that other capital allocators can learn from how we're doing it. So what I think makes it really unique in our approach is that we're using what we call the tools of capitalism, right? It's, it's taking finance and the, the, all the kinds of transactions that uh, you know, banks, venture capital investors, uh, angels, private equity, using all these tools in, in order to give and create more access to entrepreneurs of color. And understanding that you can't solve the problem with just one tool like a loan or a VC investment. You need all of those in the toolbox. And in addition to that, you know, we talk a lot about integrated capital also meaning the things that people need to be successful in their businesses. So it's social capital, right? The connections to people that can open doors. That can mean the connection to the city of Boston that could help secure a contract. It could mean a connection to, you know, um, the Bank of America that provides like the first multi-year um, contract for that business to grow, right? So it's still social capital. It's also knowledge capital, helping entrepreneurs understand here are the drivers of your business. Here's what you need to continue um, building that up or how to deal with a crisis, for example, like, you know, black swan, like COVID. Um, so it, it, and then it's also a, something new that we're starting to integrate is helping our entrepreneurs and ecosystem look at the value of political capital, right? So how are we participating as leaders of businesses in driving policy change? How are we participating in encouraging others to be civically engaged, right? So there's a concept of politics that we don't often talk about as business owners or as business people. And the reality is the way we drive change right now, right, is being politically active. It's influencing legislators to change laws so that they create more access and opportunity for people of color. So that's a bit about, about Boston Impact. And, and so our focus is you know, we'll talk about home ownership at some point uh, around, you know, using the tools uh, of home ownership to create wealth. But the way we're doing it is through business ownership, right? So we want our business owners both to build wealth for themselves as founders, but also for their workers. And so we support businesses owned, um, cooperatively owned or employee owned. We encourage businesses to adopt those models or move towards those models, because that is how you start to create wealth for local uh, 
communities. And we know that particularly business owners of color, they put that wealth back into their communities. They're much more likely to buy locally, right, to source uh, employees locally. So that wealth recycles in our own communities. Well, that, I mean, that got to sort of answering a question I was going to ask, because often I feel like when you do hear about this focus on entrepreneurship and expanding opportunities for people of color in business ownership, I sort of want, I, sometimes I wonder, is that just sort of replicating some of the existing inequality? It's going to serve kind of this narrow group of entrepreneurs, but does it have sort of a spillover effect, I guess? Does it affect uh, the issues about wealth inequality sort of more broadly at the base level? I don't know, Mike, maybe talk about that a little, because I think city life, you know, tends to work with you know, with low-income communities, with tenants, uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of the people you're working with are not at the at the point of thinking about being entrepreneurs or opening businesses. I I would push back against that a little bit. I think people of color, particularly working class, working poor folks in Boston, are some of the most entrepreneurial people you can imagine, and I think that. Is for a lot of reasons. I think, you know, I think we're incredibly creative, resilient people. And I also think um, part of it is just we've learned how to navigate the struggle of needing to do more than we have the resources to be able to do uh, mm-hmm. constantly every single day. You know, every the first of every month, our people navigate the struggle of needing to pay everything that, you know, and making every single cent uh, stretch. So, you know, one of the things that I, I'm really, really proud of about, you know, I, was, I have been on the board of City Life has a formal relationship with Boston Impact Initiative, and I've been on the board of BII uh, during the first fund. And one of the things that I was most shocked and not surprised by the fact that the, the businesses that were kind of really, really community rooted were some of the most resilient businesses in the portfolio and, and continued to be strong. And so I do think, you know, this is one of those things where since we have learned how to survive in a system that kind of sets us up to not be thriving. We've created places where we can thrive in that system and it shouldn't be on us. I guess that's part of the other part of it is like, and we should have equal access to opportunity and to resources and to capital and to all of these uh, things, affordable housing. Right. And, um, and so I just want to just say our, our people are incredibly resilient and entrepreneurial. And I think part of what the gap, what we see folks struggling most with is just the incredibly high cost of living here in Boston. You know, many of, many of our members have lived in their neighborhoods for 30, 40, 50 years, many in the same apartment or same building or, you know, as renters, as homeowners. And I think the thing that they see is that Boston is changing around that. And I think as a city, we really have a decision to make, which is, do we want to see those folks be a part of the change or be a part of the city going forward? And that really is on us to, to push uh, for full inclusion of folks who have uh, been been involved and been shaping the community for decades. And I mean, you, you talked about the, the the cost of living here. So let's talk a bit about housing since that I think by you know by far is the biggest bucket uh, that people have to draw draw from when we're talking about about household uh, cost of living expenses and um, 
And Mike, I, I want to draw attention to a thread you put out on Twitter a few weeks ago that I thought, uh, you know, raised a lot of uh, good questions about housing policy and and sort of the, our our thinking about housing and closing wealth gaps. And um, I mean, you you basically sort of wrote that that of course homeownership is a great thing uh, for folks that are in a position to make that happen, but that um, but that the sort of singular focus on that as the kind of pathway to economic security or or sort of entry into the middle class for people, uh, you know, that that might be a little bit misguided or, or, or sort of uh, skewing our, our approach to things in ways that aren't always that healthy. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's not a surprise to anybody that uh, that rent in Boston is incredibly expensive. The cost of living here generally is expensive. You know, I think the most recent report that I saw, it was somewhere in the $3,700 for an, uh, an apartment in Boston. Of course, you know, there's a whole lot of variety of, uh, you know, that's a pretty broad uh, spectrum of, of kind of housing setups. I don't think many of the folks that are our members are paying that much money for an apartment. But I do think that, you know, a huge amount of the new development, the new housing that is going up is catering toward that bread into the market, which is kind of pushing that figure higher on, on average. But yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I just want to put out there, and that was my intention with this kind of Twitter thread, which was that homeownership, you know, it's really easy to look at, um, to look at this racial wealth gap where, you know, uh, white folks have wealth that's, you know, in the six figures, uh, black and brown folks have wealth that's, you know, that's not. And to think, well, where is that wealth and how did it get created? Oh, it got through, uh, created through the, the owning of a home, which I think in a lot of cases is absolutely true. But I also think that we can't get, uh, we can't kind of lose the forest for the trees here and think that that's the silver bullet that's going to fix everything, even though it's, it's a very like pragmatic, politically uh, popular um, strategy. And again, you know, I support that strategy. But, um, but you know, the, again, it's a snapshot in time. So, right, the snapshot does not reflect the fact that, you know, racially restricted covenants were in effect until the 19, you know, almost 1950, or that redlining as an institutional practice was in effect until 1968. It doesn't talk about the fact that housing discrimination, you know, still continues to exist today. It doesn't talk about white flight or blockbusting or even um, restricting multifamily zoning. Um, so, I, I say all that just to say, you know, once we start looking at housing as an asset, then the market shifts the way that we look at housing to be an asset. And so then the market res responds by trying to protect the value of that asset. But the problem is that housing is more than just an asset. Housing also has a social use, which is this is where me and my family and my people are rooted in our community. It's where our kids go to school. It's where we vote. It's where I have access to healthcare. It's, you know, commutable to my job. And so my point, you know, in kind of trying to draw out this, what is our strategy for closing the racial wealth gap? It's mostly to draw out the fact that we can't just have such a narrow vision of homeownership as the thing that's going to get us out of this wealth gap. Because it is, you know, it actually is a minority of folks in Boston who are able to own their homes. You know, in this kind of Twitter thread, I really wanted to look at and do some research around, like, what is the data here? Like, what, what, what? Let's ground this in the material facts that are, 
in Boston. And, you know, in Boston, uh, 65% of residents are renters. That's a material fact. Uh, and uh, and that's going to continue to be, uh, you know, continue to be the case. It's incredibly expensive to buy a home in Boston. Um, and the vast majority of those renters are in the private market. Are you saying that, there, that uh, I mean, you, you, uh, you started your thread saying, you know, there's so much energy around closing the racial wealth gap in Boston. I'm here to tell you why focusing on homeownership is not the best way to do it. So is there, is there kind of an opportunity cost? I mean, if you, if you put all your eggs in that basket, is it, is it going to preclude other things? So if that's not the route, then are, are you suggesting that other kind of multiple pathways or other approaches would be as fruitful or maybe for some people in some situations would be a better path? I think the reason I chose that the, that framing is actually because what you're what we're doing by focusing on home ownership as the exclusive strategy, or not even the exclusive, but the primary strategy to closing the racial wealth gap, what we're effectively doing is we're skimming folks from the top and, and adding to those folks, even within black and brown communities. And so, you know, I'm a renter. I aspire to be a homeowner one day. I hope that happens. But, you know, also, if we want to talk about closing the racial wealth gap, maybe we shouldn't be talking about me. Maybe we should be talking about somebody who's on a fixed income or somebody who's lived in an income-restricted unit or, you know, is kind of constantly facing displacement. And so my point is actually more around a more effective way to close the racial wealth gap is not to take those at the top, the upper end of the market, and give them the ability to create an asset, even though I do think that's important. Mm -hmm. I'm suggesting that actually, if we want to meaningfully close the racial wealth gap, we have to focus on folks on the, the lower rungs of the economic ladder. And those, what those folks need are liquid capital. They need housing stability. They need rent that they can afford and project in the same way that a homeowner is able to project what their mortgage payment is going to be. We think a renter should have that same right. And so really, we're just kind of looking at how do we stabilize our folks um, so that they can actually start to save or, or you know, and and have money for for expenses or investments um, that that they they want to make. And Betty, can you talk a little about this sort of issue of homeownership versus sort of you know broader approaches? You know, not not having this kind of you know one sort of single minded focus. That again, so much of the conversation. You know, as Mike said, it's a logical thing we hear most you know middle class families like a, the biggest chunk of their assets. Uh, come in their home. So as Mike says, it kind of naturally follows that you hear all this talk about what can we do to get, you know, turn everyone into a homeowner or as many people as possible. I mean, it's, it, it's something that I think a lot about because even personally, right, one of the ways that I built some of my own, uh, or I should say broke the cycle of poverty for my family right, was mm -hmm. a series of things. It is, you know, we, we think homeownership might be one of the faster ways to build assets and wealth. It's one. But it, the conversation only focusing on that is ignoring all the other things, which include not having a lot of debt. Like student debt is paralyzing today. We know that. That's why the Biden administration passed, you know, this the loan forgiveness program for student debt. Um, it also means having access to savings and retirement accounts. It means having a really good job. Good job meaning high salary, pathway to upward 
mobility in that job or career pathway, it means good benefits, right? Um, especially healthcare, because healthcare could be, um, it, it, or, or having a, a health crisis could be debilitating for a family or for an individual, and not having healthcare that cushions that, um, again, could put you back, right, if you were doing okay from an asset building perspective. So that combination of things, right, being able to save, having retirement savings, um, even business ownership, like being able to invest yourself in a business that you own, having as much ownership as you can in that business is a way to build wealth. We can't ignore that, right? That's the other big, big path. Um, and then I think we got to talk about the debt piece, right? Because a lot of our lower income uh, families and individuals are riddled by debt, even if they're trying to get out of it, right? By going to college and getting an education to have a path to a higher paying role, they can't make a debt because of debt. So I think if we're going to talk about, you know, the plethora of solutions, they have to be done in combination, right, with each other. Homeownership is one part of it. It's not the right solution for everybody. And to Mike's amazing point, right, we've got to look at it, too, from the perspective of what, what you know, are you a working individual are you someone that is disabled and can't work? So you're limited in income, you're income restricted. So what, what pathway is there for you? Um, and, and then part of it is education too, right? For a lot of our black, Latino, Asian families, just the knowledge around how you build wealth, how you save, even having access to good financial products is not something that gets talked about. Some of it is cultural, but some of it is it's just you don't get access because you're not in the club. <laughs> you're not in the club of, you know, access to amazing wealth building products because you don't meet some income or net worth threshold. So there's a lot of conversation that we need to have in, in real honest ways, right? That there's many, many other ways to build wealth, but our systems are not set up to exponentially build on those, right? We've, we've, we thought it. Homeownership is the panacea. And, and I think that is what our community, our policymakers, uh, our, our philanthropic nonprofit community, uh, our business leaders have to start to talk about, like, how do we build up these other ways, right, to generate wealth and build up assets? And I'll give you just a couple of stats. Like, these were Hispanic and Black families. So the percentage um, of Hispanic people that have retirement savings accounts is a mere 8% in this country. Wow. So when you think about like how, how do you, that, I mean, retirement savings, right? That's how you start to plan for the future, um, even for children, right? Uh, savings accounts for them to go to college, right? Um, and I'll give you this example. I put in $50,000 into a 529 plan, right? The college savings plan for my daughter when she was two years old. Right now it's almost two hundred thousand. Wow, that's what's going to send her to college, and it's still not enough, right? Right. Um, so, but do does everybody know that? Do they know those things exist? Like, do we even have fifty thousand? Like, if we're going to do any kind of bond or a baby bond, like let's put that in the stock market, right? Um, to help build up that kind of wealth for for families. And that's actually that's what I was. Um, Trying to point to uh, in this this kind of Twitter thread, which 
you know, it's kind of crazy that we're talking about politics as big Twitter threads. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I digress. No, but but for real, like you know, I'm I'm so glad that Betty, you had the opportunity to do that, and I know that many of our members, you know, they they don't have that kind of capital, you know, mm-hmm. and so what what I was trying to raise was that if we're starting with the premise that most of the people in Boston are renters, and actually most of renters are housing cost burden. If we, if they just had access, access to housing that met their needs, that was healthy and dignified, and that was affordable, most importantly, that was affordable, then actually there's there's data that shows that in Boston, that would put an additional $9,300 in the pockets of families every single year. And so at no cost to the taxpayer, right? That's important part too, is this is something that if you had $9,000 of liquid cash in your pocket in your savings account per year, then yeah, it's not unfathomable for people to think, well, if I have a kid, then I have you know $10,000 I can put in a college savings account. Right. So we're actually saying that it's better to have liquid cash, which can be allocated and invested in a way that you know helps people have more agency over their future than locking it into an asset that really you can only cash out of if you plan on leaving which is anti anti displacement right <laughs> it's a it's not a forced move which is different it's a you know it's it's one that is um, probably at uh, at the 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 residents the family's choice but it is still something we have to grapple with and so our our my argument is actually more that the liquid cash is more important because that's cash that can be saved invested put in a small business used to pay off college used to pay an unexpected expense Mm-hmm. Um, you know, many of our folks are one one car breakdown away from losing a job and losing a source of income. And so just having like that kind of cash buffer is super important. And the one thing we don't, you know, we don't talk a lot about this, but individuals that, you know, must be on public benefits, particularly in public housing, you know, we think of it as like, wow, they're getting such a handout, but they're extremely restricted in how much they can save. So when we talk about like giving someone an opportunity, right, a pathway to hopefully exit public housing or public benefits, our systems and practices are set up to actually prevent that. Because when you live in public housing, you can only save up to $2,000. Like you, they actually check your bank account, right? Um, and when your, rent, when your income goes up, your rent goes up. So you pay 30% of, of your rent, um, 30% of your income goes to your rent. And you can't have more than a set amount in savings. So you are in this perpetual cycle of poverty, right? Um, so again, there's, there are some great programs that are set up to break that, right? Like the Compass FSS program, Family Self-Sufficiency program allows you to save through increases in your rent and it it um, excludes that cap. So it is a way for families to build some savings and ultimately exit, but it doesn't it doesn't put the pressure on you either, right? If if something happens and you lose your job or your income goes down. So there's there are some innovative programs out there that do help families at the lower incomes to be able to start to, you know, build up some savings. But Mike is, you know, absolutely right that I think the more you can give people agency in terms of using their capital, their money to do the things that they want, 
the better it is, right? But right now we are hampering it with our policies and practices. And that that kind of point that you raised, Michael, about like does is 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 um, there are a lot of regulations. I mean, just to what Betty was saying, like there's so much that we expect if you're going to take advantage of this public resource that you're basically going to um, not have any, you're foreclosing future economic opportunity. And that is itself so wrong. <laughs> right. And I mean, this is where, you know, uh, we've, we've actually been working Boston Impact Initiative, City Life, East Boston CDC has been working on um, this really large real estate acquisition in East Boston, which, um, which basically uh, bought a portfolio of 36 homes, 114 units, um, created a new entity in East Boston Neighborhood Trust. And these homes are going to function as social housing for many generations to come. I think one of the things that's really important about folks that live in those homes is that they're not actually, they're, um, you know, the intention of the, of the East Boston Neighborhood Trust is to ensure the the racial, ethnic, gender diversity that is East Boston, but also because it is existing as its own independent, self-governed trust, it actually can be aware of, you know, of what folks that are tenants are doing to try to create uh, stable financial futures for themselves. And it's not the kind of arrangement set up where you have to income verify every single year. You have to have a cap on your savings and report that. It, it actually allows our folks to, one, have the governance over this portfolio, which is really important. And because folks that are in governance are also the folks that are living in the property, it also means that they understand that, you know, just because your rent is lower and your income goes up, that actually gives you opportunity. And that opportunity can be passed down to other generations and being shared with the community. And, um, and so it actually is this kind of weird in-between where it's not quite public you know, in the sense that it's BHA, uh, you know, housing, it's not quite private because, you know, it's insulated from private market forces, which would otherwise kind of uh, constantly raise rent to keep up with the market. Uh, it is this kind of unique hybrid that really is focused on keeping people rooted in place um, and giving them the flexibility that they need to make um, make the best decisions for their lives. And I mean, that's a really that example sort of strikes me as as an important one to bring out because as you say you know it gives people some housing security and i think that's the problem or that's maybe part of why we hear this call for people to get into home ownership i mean even though it's difficult to get into home ownership once you do in some ways you know you have more uh protection uh, against the market i mean your your costs get fixed in a mortgage and those monthly costs are going to be the same 10 years later uh, while renters continue to sort of see see things rise so i think that's sort of why the home ownership thing is appealing but 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 if there can be some way to sort of protect renters from from that kind of those spikes and allow them as you say then to have sort of an ability to build some wealth uh and and to not as to betty's example then be immediately priced out of that housing and then you're, you know, you're kind of in this cycle where you're then thrown out to the market, you know, out of the income, you know, protected housing into the market where that extra amount that you're able to sock away is then suddenly gone. Uh, I mean, that seems really important. I don't know if you saw uh, last week, uh, 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 Tanya uh, Fernandez-Anderson, the city councilor from Roxbury at the city council meeting, you know, sort of 
decried really the amount of income restricted housing in her district. And she was calling for a moratorium on new developments there, which, um, uh, you know, I guess there's in some ways it's understandable. She was, I think, suggesting we need to sort of be able to have more wealth in this district. And we don't get that through income restricted housing. But um, it sounded also a little bit harsh in terms of all the people facing really desperate situation with housing costs. Yeah, and, and I think what's really hard is that we have um, a, we have a supply and demand problem right now, right? We we have undersupply of housing that's affordable, whether it's housing that you could buy, homes you can purchase, or affordable rental units. It's just there's way too much demand and need, and we just don't have enough, and. And our approach has been, let's build more, right? Let's just get more units up, um, which is needed. But I think there's other ways to do that, similar to uh, the East Boston Neighborhood Trust transaction, which is taking existing housing stock and protecting it, right? Um, you could you could also do that with community land trust models, right? Where a nonprofit or other groups can purchase particular units and and income restrict them rather than building new housing. Because again, to Mike's earlier point, what's happened is, you know, um, when you treat something as an asset, investors want to get in on that asset, right? So you've got so much investment in real estate for the pure purpose of speculative, right? Um, or speculation. So it's being rented out, pushing prices up. Um, and, and these are not people that live here or have any stake here. So um, part of the strategy around affordability has to also include not only building, right, but also leveraging these other models. And by the way, just a plug, because this is something Boston Impact will be doing with City Life um, in our new fund, is supporting real estate projects that are community owned or controlled, right? So City Life has many tenant-activated buildings that at some point might be sold by the owner. It is an opportunity for those tenants that are already ready and are being prepared to own to buy that asset, that building together, right? So there's many other models, like in New York, co-op, co-ops are much more popular than in Massachusetts, right, where you could have tenants collectively buy a property and then manage it. And then that way they could set the terms right within themselves, just like condos do here around how much do we increase costs? Like how much will it cost to exit? Right? So I think that there's, um, we're in a time where we've got to be innovative around how we invest in real estate, how we bring in community to have an ownership stake and at least governance and control right, over what happens in their own backyard. So it's an exciting time, but we've got to be willing, right, to work with community, to work with our um, our local legislators, as well as with municipal government to change some of the, the, the laws, because some of this requires change in zoning laws, right, to allow for more uh, multi-family, multi-use properties, um, and it also requires different tax incentives. So I think this is, we're in a really, a uh, great time, right, to test many of these models and then to have catalytic capital um, from funds like ours and others to be able to um, foster these innovation, innovative, creative 
and creative financing structure. On that at least optimistic final note, we might leave it there uh, for now uh, for the conversation, but uh, it's been been great to dig into these issues. And so I want to thank you both, uh, Betty Francisco uh, uh, from the Boston Impact Initiative. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And Mike Leva of City Life Vita Urbana. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. And to listeners of the podcast, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.